So this morning, uh, just two things. We're going to have a midweek teaching on the first Wednesday in April that is going to address some concerns that have arisen in our church about men and women in the church. And we want to do this by seeing, diving into what the Bible teaches about how he made male and female and how he expects us to live as a two-gendered humanity. So, is that provocative enough for you to attend midweek? <laughs> Tell all your friends we're going to be talking about it. There's going to be some good things, like just recognizing from some elders, some neglect here in not only our teaching, but also in our practice. So, there's that. Midweek, first Wednesday in April. Second is Jacob. Right after this service, we're going to be voting on Jacob, whether he should come back to be an elder or not. So, if you're a member of this church, go right over to the fellowship hall. We'll vote, we'll pray, we'll leave, okay? That's all we'll do, because I have vacation to get to. Just kidding, just kidding, that's not it at all. I can't, I'm really excited that Jacob's beginning to be coming back on, Lord willing. So if you haven't already done it, turn in your copy of scripture to Colossians. Last week I told you about a friend in high school named Jake, how my group of friends and I expected him to, to do certain things before he could be accepted into our friend group right? We all, we all know that, breaking into the circle of friends, you know. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his four loves. Everyone wants to break into that inner circle. Well, unfortunately, my friends at SeaTac Baptist and all the, what we thought were cool kids, we, had, we set some expectations on Jake. Expectations, you know, even in a Christian school, we didn't understand that, that Christ did not put on us, expectations to be accepted into a, a friend group, some, you know, some outward expectations, some outward ways you act and talk and think. So that is actually similar. The reason I brought that up again is because that's actually similar to what's happening in, Coloss- in, Coloss- in the Colossian church at Colossae, except it was that the vis- there were visitors coming into the church, false teachers coming into the church, into Colossae, telling them telling the Colossian Christians who had really accepted Christ, who really had faith, hope, and love, and were bearing fruit and increasing, they told them that you needed more than Christ to be accepted by God. You needed this mystic knowledge. You needed to live the higher, fuller life. And if you, know, if you just had enough faith, you could do this. Or if you just experience this, if you just do this program, you'll get it. If you just read this book, or if you just empty your mind, or if you just pursue knowledge, you'll get it. So Paul writes in Colossians 2, verses 3 and 4, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he says, I say to you so that no one will delude you with plausible arguments. And then in chapter two, verses eight through 10, he goes on to say, he he wants these Colossian Christians to make sure that no one takes them captive. No one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For Paul, it's Christ over all. It's Christ over everything. It's, it's Jesus plus nothing. 
And he says, because in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of the body, the church. So Paul does not want these Christians to be taken in by plausibility structures or religious rites. No, no philosophy, no, no human religion can make Jesus an add-on. He, he's not an add-on, friends. You don't get fuller knowledge of Jesus plus something. As one of my friends put it, if you're trying to live a better life or, 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 or do you wonder what the pillars of a good life are, it's not Jesus and these five pillars around. It's Jesus alone. So this is a danger, not just in the Colossian church, uh, it's also a danger for every Christian in every church. God's truth transcends time and space. So this wasn't just written only to a particular culture. The Holy Spirit has words in here for us this morning. And we're all prone to think, aren't you? Didn't you think this week that you needed something more than Christ to grow? Jesus plus self-care. Jesus plus a better system of devotions. If I could just pray more, read my Bible better. Jesus plus special knowledge. We need Jesus, but also I need to express my true inner feelings. Jesus plus anything. We're still tempted to be deluded with plausible arguments. At least I am. But is the answer just more head knowledge or education, whether it's theological or, or secular, or even just more Bible knowledge? Is that the answer? And if not, what is? What's the answer? What makes us mature in Christ? Well, Paul tells us and shows us how to become mature Christians that please God in verses 9 through 14. So in... in uh, our two points this morning, trying to drive at this big idea, pray for lives pleasing to God, lived by the power of the gospel. The two big, the, the two main points that we'll hang our thoughts on are pray for knowledge, depend on power. Pray for knowledge and depend on power. So pray for knowledge, verses nine and 10. Thank you, Bonnie, for reading for us. That's where we're gonna start. So these verses are a continuation of a prayer that he already started in verse 3. Remember, he, he gives thanks to God in verses 3 through 8 for realities, for realities that are already in the Colossian Christians. These same realities that he's going to pray for. And he wants them to advance in these realities. So the gospel is bearing fruit in them. It's increasing in them. And he asks for it them to bear more fruit. Have you ever wondered, what should I pray for? What should I pray for for myself? What should I pray for in terms of processing uh, in, in maturing in the faith? Have you ever wondered what you should pray for for your husband or your wife or your roommate or your kids or your fellow church members? Or your pastor? Have you ever wondered what you should pray for? Verse 9 tells us what we should pray for. And so, 
From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul sets the example. We should pray that each other are filled with true knowledge. Not just head knowledge, not just facts, not just secret knowledge, not secret knowledge at all. Knowledge filled with God, the knowledge of God's will. So, so two things going on here, God's will. Has everyone, anyone ever prayed, please show me your will, God? I have, yes, thank you, I see that hand. Thank you, brother. You'll come up to the altar afterwards. Uh, so God's will for us, everyone's like thinking like, God, I really, you know, there's two things about God's will. One is revealed and one is unrevealed, right? God has revealed his will in things like the Ten Commandments in the scriptures. God has revealed exactly what he wants for us. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Hey, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't lie, don't steal, don't covet, don't murder. That's God's revealed will. That's not all of his revealed will, but it is part of it. But there's another part of God's will, because he's God, that's unrevealed. Think of Deuteronomy 29, 29, where it says the secret things belong to the Lord. I'll just read it for you. I thought I could get there if I just drew out that sentence long enough. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are secret things or unrevealed part of God's will. Who should I marry? What job should I take? What college should I go to? What major? God, what do you want me to do here? He, there are certain things he has not yet revealed. And, and Paul is telling us, don't pray that he reveals that secret. Pray that he, you, and I are filled with the knowledge of what he has revealed. What's he, what's he revealed? I was trying to, I, in a Bible study this week, one of the questions came up that this is, he, Paul is praying to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, which is concrete. It's knowable. It's actionable. There's ethical commands in here. So the question was, so, so then, if that's the case, is there anything in your life that does not line up with the revealed will of God? So I sat there, coffee culture, on kings, outside, and it's raining. I don't know why that matters, but it was, barely. And I was just thinking, like, hey, what, you really want me to think about this and apply this to my life, because we, like, we want gospel fluency here. We want to create a gospel culture, so how is the gospel applied to my life here? And I just, I just got the Lord, I think the Holy Spirit reveals to me, like, Doug, I think you're suspicious of other people. So someone will give me a compliment about something, and the first thought that comes to mind is, you don't really mean that. People have commented about, uh, I don't even want to say it. H- however, there, there is suspicion there. And God, and God was revealing to me, like, this is a revealed part of my will. Love does not suspect. Love is not angry. Love does not delight in evil. It believes the best. It hopes the best. Doug, you should not be suspicious of other people. You should believe the best in them. How about for you? 
What, what part of your life might God be bringing up? Is, what part of your life is, is out of line with the revealed will of God? We're not talking about the unrevealed will, we're talking about God's will. What do you know to be true? You know, even as I sat there and tears started coming to my eyes because I knew I was sinning against God and other people, the rest of this chapter was gospel balm to me. Because it, when we get off the path and when we, when we mess up and when we don't do the right thing, what Paul is telling us is you can pray that God would fill you with his will and that you would live a life worthy of the gospel. We can pray with great confidence because God, by his spirit, wants to answer that prayer. And he says it's in all spiritual wisdom. We can just read that as wisdom and understanding of the spirit. This is God's will in all spiritual, not a Gnostic mystery kind of thing. God wants to reveal his will and how it applies to your life in all wisdom and understanding. You can have every confidence, child of God, you can ask for it, and the Spirit wants to do it and will do it. So we're encouraged to pray, be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Every confidence of God we don't need a secret knowledge. We don't need some guru or some expert. We can pray to the God of all knowledge and wisdom and understanding will be given to us. We can pray for it and he will fill us with it by his spirit through his word. So when Paul prays for knowledge, he's not praying for it to stop in the intellect though. Like we are some kind of encyclopedia of God's will that has all the right answers, but it's just a book. That's not what he wants from us. No, we're not, we're praying against intellectualism, but we're also praying against emotionalism. We don't want our emotions, uh, emotions to determine what is right, not our inner feelings to determine what is right. We want God's word and his truth to determine what is right. So we're, we're guarding from intellectualism and emotionalism, and, and we see this in, in, in Paul asking for all wisdom of God's will. And notice the purpose of his prayer guards from both of these things. The purpose of his prayer in verse 10 is so as, points to the purpose. Purpose of his prayer that we would live in such a way that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. God's will, not just a bunch of facts, but facts truth lived out in life. That's the purpose. He wants you to walk worthy of God. He wants me to live a life worthy of God so that someone could read the Bible and someone could see my life and they could say, yeah, those things match up. He wants us to live fully pleasing to him. So if that's the purpose, then, then the natural question is how or what are the markers that show we are living in a way that the Lord thinks is worthwhile. So we know the purpose of the prayer, we can live a certain way, but there's, there's some power that he's telling us to depend on in verses 11 through 14. Depending on power. So what's the purpose of the prayer, live a holy life? What's the purpose of the power? How do we know we are living a life worthy of the gospel that makes him happy? He gives us four, four proofs of this, four points in the next few verses. In verse 10, 
He says it's bearing fruit in every good work. Sounds daunting, doesn't it? In every good work? Friends, I don't think this means to, to bear fruit in every good, every good work that is possible for you to do, but in every good work that God has given you to do. Like an accountant doing taxes for the glory of God in March and April. Amen. Like a student showing her progress in her studies during finals, which many of you just did. Like a dad learning how not to frustrate his child. Like an author writing beautiful sentences. Like a wife cultivating beautiful submission and a husband laying down his rights and his life for his wife and family. Bearing fruit in every good work in those and many other ways is the result of being filled with the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit. Where has God called you to bear fruit? What are your spheres of influence? What has he called you to do? Do it. He called you to write code? Do it for the glory of God with joy. Has he called you to be a stay-at-home mom? Do it for the glory of God with joy. Bear fruit. And related to that is increasing in the knowledge of God. Here, what are ways that we increase in the knowledge of God? Most of us think, read the Bible, do a Bible study, read good books, and read good literature. That's all good. We should do all of those things. We, we can do all of those things. Should is just so, like, you better. <laughs> we can do all of those things to increase the knowledge of God. But other things he's told us to do, meditate and pray that we might increase in the knowledge of God. Take what you learned and think about it. Let God, you know, take a time of silence to let God push it down into your heart and live it out. So the prayers, the studies, the books, the literature, the praying, the meditation, the thinking, all of these are tools in our tool belt to help us live lives worthy of the gospel. Increase in the knowledge of God in all of those ways. So we bear fruit. We increase in the knowledge of God. And third, and I, know, I want you to notice the, the slight shift in tone. He says, being strengthened in verse 11. This is the passive voice. He says the, the third way we can know that we're maturing in Christ is if we are being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So God is empowering his people to endure and be patient with joy, for joyful endurance and patience. Friends, God has all power, and Paul is saying he strengthens us with all power so that we might bear up under circumstances and, and with impossible people with joy. He's not saying we become omnipotent, but he's saying God's full power is at your disposal to live a life pleasing to him. The word is dunamis. We get our word dynamite from it. Think of the power of dynamite minus its destructive part. We are, we're able, 
God is able to do this, and he enables us. God is only the one that truly empowers anybody. He has all power, and this is how he uses it to help us live lives pleasing to him. Think of his power for a minute. God created the whole world. The sun, the moon, every star, every planet, the galaxies, all of the ones we can't even see and they're still discovering he created all of those by a word. That's the kind of power God has. And he says that power he, if he, he wants you to pray for that kind of power, to be strengthened by that power so you can endure hardship and be patient with people by his glorious might, with joy, with all joy. So friends, Jesus displayed that power on earth as he healed the sick and he made blind to see and he raised the dead and he himself rose from the dead. So I just want us to know, like, we do not tap into that power with our faith, like God is some genie in the bottle. If I just pray the right prayer and the certain incantation and with the right words, poof, Aladdin comes out and grants me three wishes. That's not it. God wants to give us, he wants to empower us to live a life that's pleasing to him with the very knowledge of his will. What's the power for? Live lives worthy of the Lord. But there are lives that involve endurance and patience. Suffering, friends, it involves suffering, and that makes sense. Jesus was a suffering Savior. So these two words, power, to, endure, means bear up. Hupamone, hupo is like underneath, and you're, you're bearing up underneath. You know, sometimes at the gym, we, we lift weights and we bear up underneath them. And some of us have more power than others. Blake has more power than me to bear up under these weights. But in the Christian life, we can pray for all power to bear up under difficult circumstances. Not all of you have had or are going through difficult circumstances in your life. And if you haven't, you will. God says, in Christ, because of his work through Jesus, you, have, you will have power to bear up under them. We should pray for it. This is how you know you're a mature Christian. But also, endurance suggests long suffering towards people. Suffering long towards people that annoy you. People that are hard to get along with. People that know-it-all, people that frustrate you. Here's how N.T. Wright puts it. Endurance is what faith, hope, and love bring to an apparently impossible situation. Patience is what they bring to show an apparently, show to an apparently impossible person. Endurance, situation, patience with people. God has given us these things. He's, as you're maturing in Christ, you're bearing up under these impossible circumstances with possible people, impossible people. Just remembering that we too are impossible people for others, right? 
And this is, friends, this is where we connect to the gospel so beautifully is because Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, the most impossible circumstance for the most impossible people. Jesus did this for us. He did this in our place so that he might welcome us in. And what if you are not in the faith, if you are not a Christian, if you've never trusted Christ, what he's demanding of you is to repent of those ways and turn to him. This is it. This is the, this is the, this is the Christian walk. How do you know you're mature? You're, you're bearing fruit in every good work. You're increasing in the knowledge of God. You're bearing up under impossible circumstances with impossible people through the power of the gospel. And all of this is in the attitude of thanks to the Father who has qualified you, bearing fruit in the work of God, in the work God has called you to do, and be thankful, increasing in the knowledge of God, and be thankful, being strengthened to endure and be patient, and be thankful. There should be another question that comes to mind, though, and that is, how does this happen? right? Because he's just called us to do something that's actually impossible for us to do. Bear fruit, increase, be patient. Are you kidding me? Be thankful? I have so much not to be thankful for, and I fail over and over again in doing this, so how can I do it? So we have seen the purpose of the prayer and the purpose of the power, but what's the plan here. What's the plan for the power to come at us? What's the plan for us to be able to actually live this life that he's calling us to live? Well, that's the rest of the story. Bridget reminded me of the rest of the story with Jake last Sunday. So I'm in my senior year of high school, and I was one of the cool kids with a license. And uh, I don't think you realize how small my school was. I was one of the cool kids with a license in a school of like 100 people. My graduating class was seven. And I had a cool car. No one seemed to mind, actually, that I drove a 1979 Plymouth Champ that was, used to be red, and now was like bleached out. It was a car my grandpa gave me because, uh, gra- grandpa gave the family because he was no longer interested in driving this car to work. And so uh, I, would, I would give rides to, to people at school. You know, we'd go out and do stuff. Well, one of the rides I gave was to Jake. And uh, uh, it, I, some of you have not heard, but a little about my background, some of you have heard, but the ethos of the Christian school I was raised in and the church I was raised in was live a life worthy of the gospel, Period. And it was, you know, it it could be summed up in uh, do not smoke or drink or chew or go with girls who do. Also, don't go to movies. That was the the other part of it. Don't, Don't go to movies. Well, the ride I gave to Jake was just that. It was a ride to the movies. So I took the pastor's son to the movies. Now, that might not seem a big deal to you all, but um, it would have been uh, equivalent to taking the pastor's kid to a kager. Don't take, my, don't take Orion to a kager, okay? Please, please. I, I don't want to be legalistic, but I think I can draw the line there, you know? Uh, so it was a whole deal, right? Uh, but not just that. I took him to see 
boys in the hood. So just think about my context. The gangster movie filled with violence and profanity. And after we watched the movie, we went to Burger King and my car broke down. The clutch went out. This is the time before cell phones, so I had to use a pay phone, which looking back is very humiliating, asking someone for change so you can call your parents because your car broke down. Uh, and, but I'm not sure how they found out, but somehow they found out that we went to the movies. They might be finding out for the first time that it was Boys in the Hood. Sorry, Mom and Dad, if you listen to this, I am sorry. Please forgive me. But I, I look back on moments like that, and I'm reminded that I didn't do everything to live up to the family name. You know, my parents sat me down. And... Uh, in one, good cop, bad cop, you might say. You know, that Lego piece is like good cop, bad cop. That's kind of how my parents were. Um, and, and one was, Doug, you need to live a life worthy of, of the gospel and, and the family name and live up to our family values. But also, you are a son. You're, you're not going to be kicked out of the family because you messed up. But seriously, the pastor's kid, like of all the kids, like why him? But we love you. So the desire and the strength to please my parents came from knowing that of my place in the family was secure. I, I, I can do this. This is, this is sort of, you know, kind of like where the living a life worthy of the gospel comes from. It, it comes from a place of knowing where the power comes from. So Paul is saying that fruit will come from God. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion Philippians 1, 6. And, and, you, you, and, and now you can work with the energy that is at work within you because of God's work through Jesus. So for all of those of us who have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ for salvation, the plan of receiving power is complete. We have our place in the family. How do you know that? How do you know it's complete? Just look at the, the last two verses last three verses, Paul says, give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. We, we learned last week that saints means holy ones. It doesn't mean that... Uh, it doesn't mean that these people have done something special. They were ordinary people that were called saints because what had God done for them? He qualified them. You are a saint too if God has qualified you to share in the inheritance. He has guaranteed that you have the same inheritance as the holy ones, the saints, because of Jesus. His will is that you get all the inheritance that belongs to your older brother, Jesus. Because you're in him. You're treated like him, not because of the fruit you bear, but because of your faith in Christ, that he has planted you, he's qualified you, he has, he has put you in him, and he's even given you that faith to believe him. How, where's the power come from? You can have confidence because God has qualified you to in, share in the inheritance. Secondly, you can be confident because he has delivered and transferred you. He's delivered us from a domain that's, you know, it's someone who has authority over something. It's the domain, the exousia, the authority of darkness. You once or are now under the domain of darkness. 
It had or has a hold on you. And under its power, we have had been chained and dead. But in Christ, he transfers us to the kingdom of the son that he loves. So you're a saint too. If you were in his kingdom, you were a saint. He picks you up out of Egypt. And he splits the Red Sea And he transfers you to the other side, free from harm and slavery. But it's not just the wilderness. It's the kingdom of the son that he loves. This is what he did on the cross, friends. He did the impossible, splitting the Red Sea. He did the more impossible on the cross, dying for people, rising from the dead, then sending his spirit to awaken you to new life and transferring you into the kingdom of the son he loves. And if you're in that kingdom, he loves you too. Those who are in the kingdom of his son are sons and daughters. You've been given an inheritance. That inheritance is the kingdom that belongs to Jesus. And in that son, in Jesus, we have redemption. So you were transferred, you were delivered and transferred, and all of that happened because you were redeemed. The the picture of the Exodus is just that, redemption, the forgiveness of sins, of your freedom. You've been bought out. You've been bought by a price, like a, like a slave was bought out of slavery, like the Israelites were bought out of Egypt. You were bought with a price. And friend, it's nothing to devalue. The blessing of forgiveness, sometimes I think we devalue. It's not just wiping the slate clean. Dick Lucas puts it like this, but sin is always a power that holds people in thrall. So in Paul's teaching, forgiveness must include the breaking of that power. You're not only forgiven of sin, the power of sin is broken in your life. It has no claim over you. He goes on to say it's inconceivable that God should forgive the past and then send us back incapable of living a new life. Pardon without deliverance would be a mockery, and it is never so contemplated in the New Testament. We ought to not to speak of mere forgiveness as though this were but an initial blessing of the gospel. The gospel is precisely the offer of freedom because the forgiveness of sins. He has broken the power of canceled debt. He's broken it. It has no power over your life. Forgiveness flows from the cross, dear friends, where Christ not only canceled our debt, but disarmed the enemy. Chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Nothing can surpass or supplement the forgiveness of your sins. Nothing. God is the sovereign ruler. The sovereign ruler, Christ, is present where there is forgiveness of sins, You're in the kingdom of his son because he's forgiven your sins and canceled the slavery that you had to those sins. This is an everlasting blessing, friends, an everlasting blessing. Paul wants to protect the young Colossian church and the Holy Spirit wants to protect you, dear friend, not to add anything to the gospel. It's Jesus overall. He's the one that Canceled your sin, that transferred you 
from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. He, he is the one that has done it all. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So dear friends, pray for lives pleasing to God, lived by the power of the gospel. Gospel prayers, dear loved ones, produce gospel culture. We start living out the gospel. We start speaking the gospel into our lives. I, I call it applying the gospel or, or gospel fluency. We start to put it into every part of our lives and help each other put it into every part of our life. It produces a gospel culture that is attractive. It's because we're in the kingdom of the son that he loves. Let us as a church, as Christians, commit together to pray for one another, living lives pleasing to God, live by the power of the gospel. I just wanna end by saying, just applying this a few ways, just, just actually bringing up how it's already happening here. On Wednesday morning, there's a group at Coffee Culture who prays through the membership role, uh, for the preaching of God's word, for the power of the gospel and evangelism. Wednesday morning at six o'clock, they might not be expecting you. Show up anyway. Tell them Doug sent you. Pray. You don't have to go to Wednesday morning at 6. You could pray in your community group or the person you're doing Bible study with or the person that says, hey, you know what? I'm not really doing okay right now. Stop and pray. And pray that they would be filled with the knowledge of God so they might live worthy lives because they have been qualified, delivered, transferred, and redeemed. Let's pray. Oh Lord.